in three, two, one. I even screwed that up. Welcome back. It's episode 138 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, where I'm proud to say that our football team currently has the same record as Ohio State's. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and purveyor of a chain of pop-up acupuncture clinics, and I am joined, as always, by the Frazier and Niles of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emmanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And fellas, we sort of rushed into recording this episode, as one might imagine, on the news that Justice Ginsburg died at the end of the last, last week. Uh, by the way, I was the last person to know this. I, After weeks of refusing sort of a long waterfront walk with my wife, I succumbed Friday night. And then like 45 minutes into this, because as I say, it's a long walk, I looked down 25 text messages I'm assuming that something momentous has happened. And it brought to mind that in February of 2016, I had resisted for months going out to dinner with some of my wife's friends, finally gave in, and same thing, looked down at the phone, 25 text messages, because that was the night that Justice Scalia died. So the obvious lesson there that I hope everyone listening to the show walks away with is uh, don't do things for your spouse. Yeah, no, I was going to say the obvious lesson, Troy, which all men know is don't go to dinner with your wife's friends. <laughs> Why would you ever want to subject yourself to that well, kind of humiliation it, and cross-examination? And keep in mind, Scalia died in February. So this was Connecticut in February. And one of the reasons I remember this is because she insisted on going out to dinner on a night when it was zero degrees outside. Now, do you guys really believe there's a causal story here? <laughs> I mean, I'm beginning to worry about the joint sanity of this particular operation if these stories are meant to have any probative value. Or do you think perhaps what they're designed to do is to give you a blessing or disapproval of the subsequent nominee? Or, hey, I think they're very nice anecdotes. And what did I do on both of these days? I, I'm just same old thing. I, mean, I knew both of these justices very well. I was sorry to see what happened to both of them. Um, I think the Ginsburg was not a surprise. I think the Scalia was, to some extent, a surprise. Well, can you, Richard, I want to spend some time at the start here on Justice Ginsburg herself, because she got passed by really quickly the night of because of the political gravity of what happened. And, you know, there was a very coordinated campaign the last decade or so of her life to make her into this sort of larger-than-life figure for the left and sort of more broadly for women – but but as with all such campaigns, I mean, it was hard not to feel like you lost a little bit of the real person in an effort to transform her into an icon. And, and I I know that that you knew her. I mean, we can get to her professional accomplishments in a moment, but 
who was the human being behind all well, that? Well, certainly on the first point, I could still remember the re picture in the New Republic where they had her with lights coming from down below in the Supreme Court Library, which was part of the um, canonization process that you talked about. I knew her before she was famous. Um, in 1978, she came out to the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences, where I was already a fellow. And there were relatively few lawyers there. And we certainly spent a fair amount of time together because at that institution, lunch was a kind of a very important event. Ruth was all business all the time with respect to the work that she was doing with respect to the Women's Lawyers Project. One of the things that was so different about her from the uh, sort of other people who were at the center, they were psychologists and they were economists and philosophers and so forth. And like most people, they wandered around the wilderness quite happily in search of some higher truth. Uh, Ruth was not in search of higher truth. She was in search of grants of certiorari before the Supreme Court trying to win a case here or there in some other court. She was completely committed to all of this work. Um, she was perfectly nice about it. One of the things I've always liked about Ruth when I know her is that she was deeply committed, but she was she never postured about anything. She never hecked at anybody. She never lectured to them. It was a deep internal commitment, and she never asked for loyalty from you when you actually asked for a question. She'd ask for some form of technical advice. And so she was a very interesting kind of combination of somebody who had a fierce intellectual commitment on the one side, but whose legal instincts were exactly in the opposite direction to break large questions down into smaller questions and smaller questions into smaller questions to figure them out and then put the whole thing together. I used to make a joke that Luz would somehow or other think about whether or not she should divide the semicolon into a period and a comma. And I meant that there's a sense that she was not as an insult, just that she was really very much concerned with those kinds of details. And she did not, for the most part, enjoy getting involved in some of the larger philosophical and more aimless conversations conversations that we uh, started to have. Uh, she was, even at that time, perfectly, apparently, extremely devoted to Marty Ginsburg, who was also a friend of mine who was teaching at the law school. I mean, they were the kind of the ideal couple in some sense or another, and everybody who knew them sort of knew that the kind of devotion that they had was really uncommon, even in a world of great marriages. And so at that particular point in time, you know, I think back of, with Ruth of a certain kind of fondness, nobody would have predicted the greatness that was to become upon her there at that particular moment, because she was just too modest in her demeanor, uh, and she was never kind of boasting in any way, shape, or form. But what happened is, and I think this is also clear, is that Marty had an enormous amount to do with her advancement. There's the story that came back to me, which I assume is true, is one of the things that has to be done when you go to the Supreme Court is you have to give a dossier, uh, answer all sorts of questions about tax status of this, that, and the other thing, comprehensive records, and so forth. And Marty was one of the great tax lawyers of, of his generation. And the way this story came to me was that what he did is he prepared every year with a view towards the Supreme Court nomination all of the papers and records that had to be signed, workman's compensation form for your domestic help or whatever, put them in a folder. And so when they asked, uh, will you please present the following kind of information? Usually what people do is hire somebody, do a mad scramble, try to get it together in a week or two day or two. And what Marty just did is gave Ruth the folder and she just handed it in and it was word perfect. I mean, wow. um, it's a nice kind of story because, I mean, they really were a team like that. Marty was an extremely distinct lawyer, um, one of the very best tax lawyers of his generation. Uh, that was second
second to him through his devotion to his wife. And he knew that he would never have that kind of a political career or future. He always hoped that she would. And, you know, it started in effect when Carter in 1980 appointed her to the District of Columbia uh, Court, where she served for 13 years with, you know, evident distinction on a very controversial court in the 1970s. And then what happens is, rather, the 1980s, when she now, was there. Now, wait a second. Wait a second, Richard. Before we, before we go into her, her professional accomplishments, because I, I want to go there for a moment, but I, it has been gnawing at me for the past 10 minutes or so that right before we went on air, I asked John to what extent he knew oh, Justice Oh, you should Ginsburg. talk to him. His story is much more exciting than mine. And and all he said to me was, yeah, we hung out in Hawaii, remember? And I do not remember, so I need this story, John. <laughs> Oh, well, I was. I wanted to hear more about Marty Ginsburg doing people's taxes for free. I really <laughs> not could use that guy's help. I mean, I was sitting there going, "Oh Jesus, do I need some help?" Oh no, was, I so I I met her as a clerk at the D.C. Circuit when she was still a lower court judge, uh, and then I clerked on the Supreme Court in her second year on the bench, and. Uh, more importantly, I think she loved academics because she, as Richard said, she was a Columbia law professor. She would come out to Berkeley a lot um, because the dean who hired me was a woman named Herma Hill Kay, who was her great collaborator in all the great lawsuits that they brought in the uh, 70s to challenge um, gender discrimination. And so I would, she would come, she always be nice to me. People, you know, talk to her after she gave her talks. And, and then we would, sometimes we were at conferences together. So I'll never, I'll never forget this. So I was um, <clears throat> at the University of Hawaii and I was about to give a, a talk. And so I was sitting uh, behind a table, you know, you do like a panel talk and I'm looking out just before the thing's supposed to start. And then I see hair starting to rise above the table and then it's as if someone was on an elevator and then a little face with big glasses and then a lay and then a flower print dress and then it was justice ginsburg who suddenly appeared <laughs> in front of me as if she had come out of a trap door on an elevator she's like she was uh you know smiling at me amused that she had uh, surprised me right before my uh uh talk and um we uh yeah we spent the uh, a few days in Hawaii together. Uh, I have, you know, modesty forbids me from sharing any other details of our time together. Oh my gosh. I, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just know we, we went to, you know, meals. The great thing was in Hawaii, being so far away from New York and DC, I think she let her hair down a little bit. You know, she was, as Richard Price said, she's very formal, uh, very precise in her language, uh, very, th always thinking about the, what to say. You know, you could tell she's very uh, formal. Uh, demeanor, but I think in Hawaii, I mean, she was, you know, wearing a flowery dress and a lei and uh, was really in the sort of Hawaii spirit of things. So that may have been a side people don't see very often. It is interesting. Whenever you see somebody whom you meet in, in middle age, uh, I, when I met Ruth, she was about 45 years old, is to see pictures of them when they were younger. Ruth was a very accomplished twirler when she was in high school. And she looked twirler? Very, What's a twirler? A twirler is somebody who takes a baton and twirls it. Did you, you mean like a cheerleader kind of person? Yes, exactly. Exactly like a cheerleader kind of thing. No. Yes, that was no, what's so strange about really? it because you you knew her even after I knew her, but when I knew her, that would be the last thing that you would associate with. I her. totally but agree. But she is, in fact, that uh, was that, and, and was, and you know, it looked as though she really enjoyed the kind of part that she started to play. Um, and then, of course, you know, when she had to take care of Marty with the testicular cancer, trying to go to his law school and to her law school. I mean, that was a, an episode of heroic. 
proportions in that situation. And yet, all the time that I knew it, she never referred to it. I, I think she regarded it as something which had to be done and was done, and now it's time to start to move forward. Um, she was not in any sense a self-promoter uh, in the way in which she dealt with other people. In fact, if she had anything, it would be to sort of understate the level of influence and accomplishments that she had. And I don't think that many of the non-lawyers, when I was at the Center for Advanced Studies, actually had a sense of what her influence was um, outside the academy in the world at large. Okay, see, that's what strikes me as so odd about uh, this whole notorious RBG thing. I mean, the idea that she would have anything in common with a uh, overweight rap star who was shot in his youth, <laughs> who was known for vulgar language. And uh, it just, I mean, she's so modest and precise and uh, unassuming. You know, she's, it, people would crowd around her uh, after she gave a talk or something, but she was not, uh, you know, backslapping, charismatic. In fact, she had a deep friend, friendship with Justice Scalia. That always struck me as opposites attract. I mean, they were really the opposite kind of people. So I never understood this popular culture. You know, you called it canonization, Richard. It's much worse than canonization. It's becoming a celebrity that she became was so different than the way she was in person. I really, I actually really never understood it. We'd have to ask someone like Troy, you know, the deep maven understander of cultural <laughs> trends well, look, and social I mean, media I, I, to you know, explain I, I do, to us. I, I do actually have a theory of this, John, which is it, it seemed pretty clear to me because I remember when they made this turn this didn't exist for her entire time on the court. It happened at some point in sort of like the middle of the aughts. I always interpreted it as uh, Scalia envy, not uh, on the left, not on the, uh, the behalf of Ginsburg, that you had in Scalia this sort of larger-than-life figure that became a totem for the way that the right thought about the court. And I think that that's, that's what they wanted out of Ginsburg. But, but to this point, let me use this productively to steer you guys into the, the next part of this conversation. For those of us on the right especially— and who pay attention to the court, you learn over time these little gradations, right? What separates Scalia from Thomas? What separates Gorsuch from Alito, especially as time goes by? And we tend not to pick up on that with the people on the left because we just put them all in that basket. And, and as we've talked about this, you know, as we talked about before on the show, left also tends to move in lockstep a little bit more on the big issues anyway. So let's let's get past that for a moment with Justice Ginsburg. I mean, if we were really trying to peer into her jurisprudence, if you, if you were characterizing what the legacy of her time on the court is, what would you say? Richard, I'll start with well, you. Well, I mean, it's very difficult to say in some sense outside the area of sex discrimination, abortion, and so forth. I think if you actually wanted to uh, sort of put a chart together, and people have tried to do it. Um, on the left, there is essentially a split. The Sotomayor and Ginsburg were noticeably further to the left than either Kagan or Breyer. Breyer was a little bit further to the right than Kagan. Um, I think the difference between them is, is captured in some of their cases. In Trump v. Hawaii, for example, you could see what's going on. Uh, Ginsburg, following on Sotomayor, did not need to have any further examination of the way in which the case looked to be convinced that every decision that Trump made, no matter how many people looked at it afterwards, was tainted by the evident form of bias that he so crudely displayed uh, during the 2016 campaign. And so they were prepared to strike down the Muslim ban, uh, as they called it, even though it was a ban on people from particular nations, without further ado. And, you know, many people sort of said, oh my God, this means that motivation 
is going to disable the president um, on an issue which is of obvious national concern. If he cannot impose this ban, can he impose any other? You try to figure it all out. And the way in which I read this was they were less concerned with the institutional niceties of this particular case and more concerned with making a very strong moral pitch on how it is that presidents ought to behave themselves. Uh, if you then looked at the opinion which was done by uh, Breyer and Kagan, it was a very different proposition. Uh, they said, you know, there isn't enough evidence on this. If I were forced to decide this right now, uh, they both said we would agree with the Sotomayor Ginsburg position. But we're willing to have this thing remanded. Lord knows what you're supposed to do on the remand on this thing uh, to see which way it went. I thought on that opinion, the Chief Justice had much the stronger of the argument. Uh, the conferral of power by Congress on the president to deal with it, um, immigration is enormous. And I think it has to be the uh, constant old saw about distributions of power is that the executive can act with dispatch and the Congress can act only with deliberation. And when you're trying to figure out what to do with emergencies, you have to delegate the power, even if you may reserve the power to um, uh, pull this thing back. And he said, after two other things, he said, these are very similar to the Obama band. And also each of them went through independent review by extensive number of agencies, the Treasury Department, the State Department, and so forth, uh, that he's just not going to do this. And so what you see in effect, I think, with Ginsburg uh, was much more of a sense of impatience with the legitimacy of existing institutions. I think in that regard, she was also somewhat different from Justice Stevens, who was the leader of the court uh, before he retired on the on the liberal side in 2010, I think. But he never could attract that kind of a passion. Um, he was a Republican. He was a business lawyer. And there were certainly differences in his way. And, and she essentially did that. And the reason why it resonates so well today is not so much about her feminism. She was quite a conservative feminist, and I could tell anecdotes about that as well. What the, she captured was a sense of sort of frontal distrust for the Trump administration, for the conservative uh, Republican establishment, which essentially was necessary to make a hero of her on the left. And, and I think that she relished that role at a certain point and was quite conscious about it. Uh, she did it with a great deal of dignity and a lot of assertions on these things. Uh, but that's, I think, what accounted for her allure. And of course, as you mentioned, Scalia was the foil and he became somewhat canonized on the right. So interesting enough, on the personal level, just to finish it off, I think they had complementary personalities. Uh, she was quite happy to listen to him go on at length. Um, when Scalia was on his game, he was one of the best stand-up comics and rock contours you could ever hope to meet. And Ruth, given her personality, never felt that she had to be in competition with him. I have a different view. Oh, sorry, Troy, you were about to... I was about to prompt you to give me that different oh, view. Yeah, I had a different view. I think there's a big difference between being an advocate, you know, being a passionate supporter of a position, and then being a judge. And I think, uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg advanced very aggressive arguments about why, even though women are not in the text of the 14th Amendment, they should be uh, protected from discrimination in a similar way to uh, race and national origin and religion. And she won. I mean, she was uh, essentially the Thurgood Marshall of the women's rights movement. But I think um, as a judge, she couldn't be that kind of person. So, uh, you know, her fate was she was a, a liberal on a court that was trending conservative. I think if she had been on the Warren court, she might have had that kind of position and role where she could espouse and articulate, you know, a different vision of the Constitution. 
but she's almost always in dissent in a Rehnquist Roberts court. She's, you know, the purpose of dissent is not necessary to lay out some grand new vision of the Constitution or rights or how to interpret the text. Instead, you know, it's to contain, criticize, limit, uh, to be kind of a faithful opposition, uh, a loyal opposition to the majority. And so you sit there and go, what are her great opinions? I mean, the only one I can think of as a majority opinion is um, the case requiring the Virginia Military Institute to admit women, which was really just a reaffirmation of the cases she won when she was already arguing before the Supreme Court in the 70s. You know, other than that, you know, her, you know, her dissents are what are important, but they're often, they often take the form of this. Uh, like she wrote a dissent in Bush versus Gore. Here's how it will go. It goes something like this. Well, the majority is taking this case out of the hands of the Florida courts uh, on a matter of Florida law, which is how to do recounts. Uh, this majority is being hypocritical because in lots of other cases, they always say we have to defer to state courts about state law, but here they're not doing it. And that's a lot of her dissents are like that. They uh, work within the existing framework and they try to show the majority isn't living up to it or is changing it or is cutting it back. Um, but it's, uh, take another example, uh, the, the uh, partial birth abortion cases. You know, there's not a huge ringing new approach to abortion. Instead, she says, look, the existing test is the state can't place an undue burden on your right to get a woman's right to get an abortion. And she just say partial birth abortion bans do that. And here's why I think they do, and contrary to the majority. Uh, so she, so, you know, she, and look, uh, that's why I was also think it was sort of odd, this celebrity status, because she's not like a Earl Warren or William Brennan at a different time, different opportunities, or revolutionizing how we understand the Constitution. She was, uh, you know, she's like the person who's defending on the other side of MacArthur or Patton or Grant, you know, we often admire and want to study the people who are conducting the offense, and we don't really study, as we should, I think, but we don't really study and idolize people who are playing the defense. Look, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that, John. I mean, I think, for example, if you take her dissent in a case like Shelby County having to do with whether or not the 1964 list of states that need to have special procedures under Section Right of the Votings Act, I mean, it was a very powerful kind of statement about how it is that she thought this current court had lost its way on all of these kinds of issues. And she has, if you recall, a cancer metaphor, which seems kind of odd now, uh, which is that now that you've treated the patient, you have to make sure that you don't let up on the treatment because otherwise there'll be a recurrence of the disease. I mean, she did have a kind of flair on, on some of these things. Um, I'm in this very strange position where, for the most part, I would predictably disagree with her on many of these issues. I do on Shelby County, and I did certainly with respect to the VMI position. VMI, I think there's another explanation for. Uh, this was going to come anyhow. And it turns out that when you start creating great constitutional rights that are anticipations of movements that are going to happen, uh, they have a more celebratory status. And that would be true of something like Obergefell, right, where the same-sex issue socially had already been resolved. It was true about Griswold and contraceptives. It was not true, however, about Roe v. Wade and abortion because uh, the social decisions remain as deeply problematic, divided today as they were back in 1973 when these decisions have come down, which is why it is when you start talking about those innovations that seem to have some genuine play in the joints, the ones that seem to take it most uh, for her are the ones that become essentially uh, categorical improvements with respect to the system. Uh, the Roe stuff, I think, is, is going to remain controversial, and that's the only one of these decisions which is really up for grabs in the current Supreme Court dispute.
Well, let's talk about that because, yeah, Roe is clearly the thing, as it always is, that's driving all the anxiety about what's happening. So uh, let's kind of examine where we are at this point. So Justice Ginsburg dies on Friday night. Shortly thereafter, you have Mitch McConnell saying that Republicans in the Senate are going to bring this thing up for a vote. The next day, President Trump says he's going to make a nomination. We know now that it's coming uh, on this coming Saturday. And we also know pretty clearly as of today that there are not going to be enough Republicans peel off in the Senate to keep this from happening. The only two who have said that they uh, are not in favor of moving it before the election are Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. So predictably, the accusation has been that this utter hypocrisy on the part of the Republicans in the Senate who blocked Merrick Garland coming from President Obama in 2016. Let me read for you guys the statement that former President Obama himself put out which says four and a half years ago, when Republicans refused to hold a hearing or an up or down vote on Merrick Garland, they invented the principle that the Senate shouldn't fill an open seat on the Supreme Court before a new president was sworn in. A basic principle of the law and of everyday fairness is that we apply rules with consistency and not based on what's convenient or advantageous in the moment. The rule of law, the legitimacy of our courts, the fundamental workings of our democracy all depend on that basic principle. As votes are already being cast in this election, Republican senators are now called to apply that standard. John, how do you respond to that? Well, I love the U.S. Senate. I work there. I mean, I, I, but there, yeah, we have to understand it's a body that under the Constitution has no rules other than what the Senate sets for itself. And so the question is, how do you, as part of the statement says, how do you get the Senate to follow rules consistently in the future. Uh, you know, why is there a filibuster when a majority can always get rid of it? Why do they ever let 40 Senate, front of 40 of their own, stop the other 60 from doing what they want to do? Uh, and so the, the main limitation is tradition and practice and history. Now, when this question of should they should the Senate, and I think all the action is the Senate, the president's going to pick someone, as you said, Troy, this week. I think that's just, you know, that's interesting, but it's really going to be up to the Senate whether the seat is filled. And look, there's a number of ways to look at it. The, the two things that I think are most important are that there have always been vacancies that arise in a presidential election year. Uh, every president has nominated someone uh, uh, from Washington on for seats in that year, and Senates generally have confirmed them when they're the same party. And I was, I was looking up who were some of these people, and the most important one, Chief Justice John Marshall himself, the greatest justice in our history. He is actually nominated and confirmed after the, by the Senate after Jefferson wins the election of 1800. I mean, if, if we were to follow uh, Schumer's rule, or uh, we would never have had John Marshall on the court. Uh, as I, as that's one. The second thing is, uh, yes, I wish there were a rule here, but I think what's happened is, take a look at the longer lens. This is a case where I think the Democrats are reaping the whirlwind of their politicization of the confirmation process. I think this goes back all the way uh, to 1987. Which to Richard is just like yesterday, but to ah. me, it's a long time ago. <laughs> and this is Robert Bork, all right, who is rejected, not for his qualifications, his experience, his education, his skill, intellect. Right? He's one of the most qualified people. Uh, no offense, Richard. He's one of the most qualified people in 1987 you could put on the Supreme Court. And he's rejected solely because of uh, 
his ideology, the way his jurisprudence, the way he thinks about the law. And I think that set off a slow and steady decline, which includes uh, surprise attacks on Clarence Thomas, on Brett Kavanaugh with unfounded allegations of sexual harassment, which includes starting to use a filibuster against judges and then lifting the filibuster against judges when it's convenient to pack the lower federal courts. I think this is just the inevitable escalation of politicization of the confirmation process. But it's, we should keep in mind, it's Democrats uh, that started it, and for them now to complain about where it's went, when actually no rules here, formal rules are being changed. And actually, I would argue no norm, long-term norm is being upset. I think that's, uh, they, I, I think that smacks of hypocrisy to me. Well, I'm not going to use the word hypocrisy about anybody. Let me start about the Obama statement. Um, One of the things that Mitch McConnell stated was a philosophical proposition, which he did not mean, which is, I think, in general, we ought to allow for the election to take place before we decide upon a nominee. What he really meant to say is if we have a Senate of the opposite party of the president uh, and we wish to hold this up, we may have to pay a political price, uh, but we are willing to do so. And my own view about that is I was not comfortable with it as a political matter, uh, but I thought that the outcome of the case was actually better this way than the alternative scenario, which is that Merrick Garland is in fact allowed to testify. The Republicans engage in a campaign of some kind of vilification of a perfectly honorable gentleman, and then they vote him down to the point where there's animosities all the way. I think in effect what McConnell said was Uh, Look, this is just a high question of principle, and we're not playing along. Now he's got both parties. I have already written that I would rather have this thing postponed until the election takes place, obviously out of step with a huge number of Republicans, uh, precisely because I fear that if the Democrats win the election, there'll be movements towards court packing, lots of other kinds of stuff, which I regard as extremely distasteful. My fond hope is that if the Republicans agreed to hold back on this until the election, uh, what the Democrats would do is agree to be civil when it comes up. Because on the one point that John did mention, which I think is clearly true, is if you start looking at the nominations since Bork and going forward, uh, the pattern is very clear. Uh, Republican nominees either get savage or subject to serious attack. Back in 1987, when I was actually, you know, pretty much active in the in the whole situation, I could still remember going to speak to a large number of uh, Chicago alumni in Los Angeles, and I was talking about some issue having to do with my takings book, and some gentleman sitting there on my left comes up and says, Professor Epstein, everything you say seems to have an ominous similarity with the wretched judicial philosophy of Robert Bork. And so back into it we went, and I said, you know, ironically, he's a judicial restraint guy. I turn out to be much more of a constitutional activist, given all the stuff that I've written on taking, but it didn't matter. The reason why I was a Bork guy is that, in fact, um, I happen to think that he ought to be confirmed. Afterwards, Bork was very unhappy with me uh, and said so privately because he said, you know, the problem about you is you support somebody as a matter of principle without having full agreement with everything that I happen to stand for, to which my answer today is now, if I had to vote for only those Supreme Court justices who agreed with me on all major issues, I would be in dissent every time. No, Richard, it's, wor- <laughs> Richard, it's worse than that. I remember from the Bork hearings, I thought I remember mm. 
um, or maybe it's a Thomas. I remember Joe Biden. I thought it was waving your book around, saying, "Do oh, no, you agree? No, no, no. Do you agree no. with the outlandish views in this book?" So Bork was probably saying, "No, Richard, it wasn't next, time, was Richard next time, don't support me. Don't support me for that, my that nomination." Was, that was the Thomas <laughs> hearings. It was the Thomas <laughs> hearing. Um, he waved the book around. Will you talk about natural law not in the context of your grandfather, not in the context of race, not in the context of equality, but you talk about in the context of commerce, just like it is talked in the context, that context by Macedo and by, uh, by Epstein and others. Uh, Justice Thomas gave the very novel and powerful defense and said, Senator Biden, you do know that the words private property do appear in the Constitution, uh, which I think kind of surprised <laughs> our, our good friend Biden. But yes, this was an effort. I, I, just to give you the backstory on that, um, one of his aides, a man named Greg Peck, I think it was was, who then called me up when I was speaking in Kansas and wanted to know if I would testify at the particular hearing. Um, the, you know, uh, the Klegalites always are a great sort of attraction, but I came to the following conclusion. Testifying before Mr. Biden would mean that you'd have to submit a statement in advance that you would not be allowed to read, and they would spend all their time pillaring you in an effort to get to him. And so what I wrote back to Mr. Peck was, um, I am quite happy um, to have a debate with Senator Biden on any of the principles of takings law outside the situation of a constitutional, uh, of a confirmation proceeding. I mean, I know, you know, he might actually think he knows something about this particular subject, but there are very few debates back in 1987 that I would have gone into with greater confidence than one with uh, Justice, uh, uh, rather, with, with, with Joe Biden on the meaning of Euclid against Ambler Realty or the Penn Central case and so forth. I mean, uh, but that's the kind of silliness that that often happens in these hearings. Uh, the stuff with respect to Kavanaugh was much uglier on that. And even the stuff with respect to um, Alito and Roberts certainly had their sort of moments of, shall we say, gratuitous unugliness. Un you think of what happened with respect to the four Democrats who get confirmed in the interim, Breyer, Kagan, um, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor. And there are certainly scuffles, but I would think that the volume was much, much lower. And, and so the great danger here is, you know, how do you respond to a situation in which you're, you really do expect that everything will be launched at the potential nominee? My view is I would rather avoid that. I think that Trump could do a better job running, saying that if you appoint me, you will get a nominee who likes it, than trying to force it in and then wait for the situation oh, where it no. my, I know, but I'm a minority, <laughs> John. You know, it's unilateral disarmament. It was just like lay down your gun and have the tank John, run over you. Well, I mean, well John, 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 take up your weapon and shoot me dead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> really, Richard? You really, you, you say that we should not nominate? Trump should not nominate anyone? Uh, my view at this particular oh. point in time, you can nominate, but I would be, think it would become a, just a terrible situation. Nominates, confirms, loses the oh. election, and then what happens is all hell breaks loose when the Democrats take over and change every major rule in the Senate. And so They would do it anyway then. No, I don't think they will do it. <laughs> I don't think they would do I don't think they would do it anyway. Let me ask you that. So at least half of that scenario feels baked at this point, right? He is going to nominate. He is going to nominate. DOA on arrival is my position. And the Republicans in the Senate are going to push it through. And if the numbers stay the same as they are now, which is not at all certain, but if they do, you're probably looking at 
Democrats controlling the White House, Democrats controlling all of Congress. And the thing that we've seen in the five days that has elapsed since this has come up is for almost everybody in the Democratic Party in a position of power, the prospect of court packing is either text or subtext at this point. There's nobody, including Joe Biden, including Chuck Schumer, who's been willing to dismiss it out of hand. So I I raise for you the probability question that Richard brought up, which is how likely do you think the Democrats are to be able to, A, to go for it, B, to be able to to get it through. But, But point C... What world are we living in once they do? Well, for, look, they this do. is what I wrote about in my book, in this Defender-in-Chief book, is that even before Ginsburg's vacancy occurred, all but Biden in the Democratic uh, presidential nomination race said that they agreed that they should pack the court. So I don't see why we think, oh, we got to stop them from doing it. And if we don't nominate someone to fill Ginsburg's vacancy, they'll hold back. I mean, they were already promising to do it back in January. <laughs> so I don't see what what's changed to make you think they're less likely John, to do it they now. They may have promised to I do mean, it, but the but popular it, momentum with, behind it with, is you, going to be an extra. And then you've got all these other things they are promising to do, like add two states to try to get around the electoral college to pass this green new. I mean, you go on make independent councils permit. You go on and on. I mean, they're the ones who are really talking about a constitutional revolution before any of this happened so that, Look, that's that's just one i think I, I, mean, I, I just don't i think they're going to do it regardless of they'll, they'll do what they want to do if they have those kind of majorities that troy's talking about in, in the house senate and the white house regardless of whether you hold well, off just, and give I them the seat anyway that. i mean I, I, I don't i mean i think they're, they're the radical wing of their party is really pushing the ag- agenda i mean look at the platform you said, where's the moderation in the platform? It was, you know, these joint Biden-Sanders teams. They actually push the agenda all to the left in almost every uh, issue. It's just American people haven't noticed because they're obsessed with Trump and uh, COVID. But if you look at the policies they're pr- promising to put into effect, I mean, it's going to be, a, it could be the most left-wing administration since uh, FDR. Not not since, including FDR. <laughs> so, um, but so look, what, what's going to happen, Troy? This, let me just say, Troy, the, the, look, there's going to be a few senators in the middle still left who could stop right. it from happening. There's uh, Joe Manchin, right, from West Virginia. I mean, because even if the Democrats win the Senate, it's going to be a, you know, they, they can't afford to lose one or two seats because they got to repeal the filibuster first. Um, there are even- right, and there, we should say that if you look at the numbers right now, there's no scenario where they get a majority that's much more than a bare majority. So they're not going to have huge margins of error there. Yeah, I mean, it looks like they they might like if all the things cut their way, maybe they get two. You know, maybe they get a majority of two. Maybe it's fifty-two, forty-eight. If if they lose. Uh, mansion and then they they're still that senator tester is tester tester didn't lose two years ago right tester's still around John tester is still, yeah, he's still around farmer from montana those are guys, what about i assume those are guys be- who voted i think mansion voted for kavanaugh tester might have too but you still got two people who aren't with the uh, aoc gravy train <laughs> so um, maybe uh, maybe they will stop the filibuster repeal and if you do that then the other things fail too uh, look i 
Nobody knows what is going to happen, but let me put forward what I think to be the situation. Um, I think there's a, a an ascendant left wing which will continue to gain strength no matter what happens in this particular election. But I think what will happen is its intensity and its success will become greater if, in fact, they could point to something which is perfidy and horror on the part of the Republicans. Uh, so if Trump were to hold his hand and they could fill the seat, it would still be 5-4 Republican. I don't think under those circumstances the chances of getting the um, expansion of the court through. And Troy four, asked the question. I don't think it now. I mean, even the first question is, so he puts it through. Now it's 6-3. Do the Democrats go for two to make it 6-5 or do they go to four to make it 7-6? I mean, you don't have any idea as to how the change in the dynamics will view on such things like, you know, when do you grant certiorari? Do you have sub-panels to deal with less consequential cases? Um, no, once once I, that I starts, Richard, it'll become totally political and Republicans retaliate in kind. Well, and they'll I have more I mean, seats. 16 but it'll people, still right? be the Democrats' choice whether they want to drive the court all the way to well, the I think the answer political is, agents of the political they parties will to drive be it all the way. I mean Then we should but, fill the seat now. I mean, look, you know, I live on the upper west side of, of Manhattan, right? Yeah, and, that explains I mean, a know, lot of your view. No, no, <laughs> that no. no. Your view I, now. I just wish to record what I regard as the entire intensity of the views on the other side, and they will basically be taken up exponentially if this happens. I, you know, certainly, I've certainly said that all things considered, I will vote for Trump, John. I'm not like you, a full blasted, but uh, what you do is you not only vote for a candidate, you have to vote against a particular candidate. When you vote for candidates, you just don't vote for the president. You vote for the administration that they're going to bring along with it and the policies they state. And on most of those things, I, I just find the Biden positions utterly unsuccessful and so forth. Uh, but I think, in effect, if one, if Trump does this, one of two things are going to happen. It may galvanize his base and he will carry the, the game. Uh, so if he does this and then wins the election and controls the Senate, it will be regarded as the coup of the month, but it will create a permanent opposition that is so intense that American politics, which are now completely toxic, will only get worse. And to some extent, you know, uh, the suggestion that I would like to see is is a deal which will never happen, is Trump holds his hand and the Democrats agree to behave like gentlemen and gentlewomen if it why, turns out Why would wins. you believe them? Well, I would hope to believe that because if we could get them to make the formal deal and then they have to go into this kind but, of tirade. But you're, Richard, you're, you're an expert on these kinds. This is an unenforceable deal. We understand that Once the election takes place, they no, can no, say, no, oh, no. the American people have spoken. No, John, John, we have John, to pass unenforceable. The there is no court that does it. But there are things known as self-enforcing contracts, uh, where if you make a particular promise and then you deviate from it, you're left worse off than you were before. Uh, that's what one is hoping. Um, I think, in effect, uh, my own view about this is the Republicans had made up their mind what they were going to do uh, before Ruth died. Um, so, I mean, I, I want to get you guys to the, the people whose names are circulating. Yeah, but can I just finish this one point? Sure. Go ahead. Um, the list comes out four, the second list comes out four or five days earlier. I think it was sort of open knowledge that she, after many heroic fights with cancer, was not going to win this one. Now, you can't make a decision of this kind of momentous importance on whether or not you're going to nominate now or later um, and wait. And so what McConnell did is in the same tweet in which he 
praised Ruth. He announced the policy. And so I think that that was already set in advance. So skeptics like myself are simply blown out of the water. Um, and I think that what happened was that they understood the position that Murkowski and Collins were in, and they gave them passes. So they are basically planning on doing this 5149. And I think they already had the votes in hand. And then the question is whom they're going to put forward well, Troy, you and John are the great political analysts. Me, who knows? But I will defer to anybody on this question. Well, there, there are three names that have been circulating most prominently in the press. The first, probably the most familiar to our listeners, is Amy Coney Barrett, who supposedly was the, the runner-up the last time for the seat that went to Kavanaugh. She's on the Seventh Circuit. Barbara Lagoa, off of the Eleventh Circuit, who's been getting uh, – very close to the same amount of press as Barrett. And then sort of Soto Voce, the other one that you hear, is Allison Jones rushing from the Fourth Circuit. We, sh- we should mention the president's already stipulated it's going to be a woman for this seat. So, uh, John, I'll start with you on this. How should we think about the, you know, the differences between these three candidates, what we might be getting with each one of these nominations, respectively? I- I'm still in abject speechlessness about Richard's unilateral disarmament here, but let me, <laughs> let me try to emerge from this hole of despair that Richard doesn't want to fight this one out with the other side. So I would say, uh, let's go through each one of them. So if you look at um, ACB, Amy Coney Barrett, I've known her for a long time. She's uh, clerked for the same lower court judge I did, Larry Silberman, a very prominent uh, conservative judge in the Washington DC appeals court. Uh, She's clearly conservative. She clerked for Scalia too. She's given Uh, I think she's given speeches and definitely written law review articles saying that judges should interpret the Constitution based on the original meaning of its provisions. She's also, I think, uh, written very sensitively about the conflict uh, uh, that can occur for judges between their personal religious beliefs. She's, you know, well-known conservative Catholic, and their duty is uh, duties as judges. So, for example, she wrote about. Um, this problem that Scalia wrote about too, which is what if you're a Catholic believer and uh, you're supposed to be against the death penalty and as a judge, you're supposed to uphold the death penalty because that was the original understanding of the 8th and 14th Amendments. And she said, look, a judge should do what the law says. And if you can't reconcile yourself to that, then you should either recuse yourself or you should resign. I I think that's the correct position, and I think it's admirable that she wrote about it. Um, She also did, I think, another good thing in her her favor is that she did a very good job in her appeals court hearings when she was attacked by uh, the senator Mm -hmm. from California, Dianne Feinstein, uh, who said weird things like, the dogma speaks loudly through you. I'm not really sure even what that means. you know, it sounds like I mean, it sounds like something out of like one of the first three Star Wars prequels or something. I was like, "What the hell is this about?" But you know, people attacked her. I think rightly for trying to suggest that uh, Catholics shouldn't be on the bench or something. But uh, people forget that uh, Amy Coney Barrett did a good job in those hearings and responded. I think quite uh, firmly that she didn't think that her personal moral views should come into the picture uh, interpreting the Constitution. That, I might add, was not President Obama's view, who thought that judges should have empathy and that their sentiments should influence how they should decide cases. Now, Lagoa is the one I wouldn't say worried about so strongly as, um, I hate to say it, but you know, she reminds me a little bit of Justice Souter uh, in this respect. You know, She's uh, worked uh, for a variety of Republican 
figures in Florida. Jeb Bush appointed her, I think, uh, to the uh, Intermediate Florida Appeals Court. She was a um, assistant U.S. attorney in the Bush administration down in Florida. She was appointed by Ron DeSantis to the Florida DeSantis to the Florida Supreme Court. Everyone says she's conservative. But she doesn't have that track record of writings, speeches, signals about what she really thinks about how to do the job of interpreting the Constitution. I, you know, that, that, that worries me quite a, quite a bit, especially when you have other people like uh, uh, Barrett who do have a significant track record that you know, should be – where this shows commitment to interpreting the Constitution properly. Um, my views on this are, are complicated. Uh, I don't know whether you're trying to go for merit or for excellence or whether you're trying to go for confirmability. I mean, I think uh, if anyone were to look at this on the basis of established track record and intellectual achievement, that Amy Barrett would be regarded as heads and shoulders above all the other nominees, given her uh, three years on the court and also the fact that she was a pretty distinguished law professor at the Notre Dame Law School. Uh, if you're trying to figure out how a confirmation fight is going to go, and you're trying to figure out how it ties into the election, I think Lagoa is clearly going to be a nominee of choice uh, because she is a Hispanic. And so if they decide that they want to tar and feather her, as Democrats have been likely to do in the past, um, it could cost them the state of Florida, and it could cost them many Hispanic votes elsewhere. Uh, my own view about this, if Trump is going to win, it is going to happen because they're going to be defections from the black vote and from the Hispanic vote, which would normally go to a Democratic candidate. And this would, I think, really push that on one of the things. I do not even know about the third nominee whose name I've forgotten, so I can't do it. In terms of the academic stuff, I mean, my own view is before I would venture anything, I would want to sit down and read a dozen opinions that each of these women had written in order to give some sense as to how this thing starts to play out. And I would want to sort of vet them fairly thoroughly. One of the things of course that we don't know is whether the vetting is beginning now or whether they understood that this was the eventuality had planned in the manner that I had suggested before and already have dossiers put together on the three of them. Uh, my sense is that the as the Democratic opposition becomes more severe, the chances for LaGoya go up um, as a simply brute calculation of the Supreme Court. How does that work out? Well, you remember when Justice Brennan got nominated in 1956? It's because Eisenhower wanted to sort of solidify his position in New Jersey when it turned out he won by having over 400 electoral votes. I mean, uh, I think political calculations are very risky, but I think politicians tend to make them. Uh, one of the great difficulties, of course, with Supreme Court nominations is they always outlive the president that appointed them, and you're trying to think of how a judge will work 20, 30, or 40 years from the time that she's appointed. And at that particular time, I mean, it seems to me that what John says is you want an intellectual track record, some degree of conviction, becomes for the long haul the most important thing to worry about. Is there anything else that you can do to mitigate that risk? This is a really interesting point that you bring up, Richard, because this, of course, is the pervasive Republican anxiety, right, about every judge that gets appointed <laughs> to the Supreme Court. It's how long is it going to take them to get wobbly? So obviously, you've got all the things that John mentioned. You're, you're looking for the paper trail. You're looking for the history of writings. Maybe you're looking for associational things in, in terms of where they worked. Um, John, actually, let me start this with you because you used to work on the Judiciary Committee. If you're a senator in a confirmation hearing, or if you're a president who is considering a nominee, 
when they come in your office or they come before your committee, is there some shibboleth you're looking for? Is there some question or questions that can you know go some distance to try and insulate against that risk? What would you ask? Uh, so you know, th- this is very. That's a great question, um, and I sort of faced it from both sides of the uh, constitutional aisle. I served did it when I was yeah, working in the Senate and then also interviewing nominees when I worked in the Justice Department. And you don't want to have a litmus test in the sense of, oh, what do you think of Roe versus Wade? Would you overrule Roe versus Wade? I, I think um, that would uh, cause a lot of problems for the nominee right? if, they were, uh, if they had to recount. Oh, I answered that question. Here's how he answered it. Um, so I think the better way to figure out what a judge will be like as a, a person will be like as a judge or as a justice is to ask them, uh, I, I have some two questions. So one would be, uh, which justice in the history of the court do you, uh, mo- most, uh, resemble? Who do you most emulate? Who think the, thinks about the law and the constitution the way you do? Uh, and, and if they say Malan Pitney, that's the one that the really <laughs> <laughs> Confirmation <laughs> guarantee. I take back all my objections. And then you send them to teach at NYU, Chicago, and Hoover. <laughs> we say, we have been searching for you. You're like, you're like the, you're like Anakin Skywalker. We've been looking for you for centuries. <laughs> no, we found you. We have found you. Fails, right? <laughs> no, I mean. And then the other I, interesting thing, I, the second question that I think is really uh, gives you an insight into someone is you say, um, okay, what case, uh, what case has the Supreme Court decided that you think is most in need of being overruled? So I think those are two good questions to give you an insight into the way someone uh, thinks about the law without having to say, oh, would you overrule this case? Would you get rid of that ca- this that case? Which are very touchy. For, and judges, I remember judges used to say, uh, and, and they often still do, well, I can't discuss that specific case because it may come up before me. Look, I, I disagree with the last point. I think you could ask anything inside the uh, vetting that takes place. I think you cannot ask questions like that when you actually get before a Senate committee and have to start to testify. Um, it just gets too messy. I always approved of the old practice where the nominee was never to appear at the hearing, and you just simply argued about her record and the hopes that you could come to some conclusion, because otherwise you're going to be playing a game of gotcha, which it turns out that nobody can play particularly well. What I fear about this whole hearing is that one flub and you're done is a very serious kind of constraint. Um, And I would prepare my nominee if I were Trump or a future Democrat think of this as a deposition in which uh, when you're faced with hostile questions, the answers are short and terse because uh, you don't want to get yourself into trouble. And then you get out of your peekaboo style when you're asked questions by friendly or senators as to be more expansive as to what your position turns out to be. Uh, but I frankly don't think that you really know what's going on in many of these cases. But what we do know is that there's a strong leftward drift on this, uh, not uniformly, but pretty consistently. Um, certainly, if you were to take 
some Republican stalwarts to the end of their careers, like Justice O'Connor and Justice Stevens. They markedly moved to the left. I think the same thing actually was starting to happen with Justice Rehnquist uh, uh, just before he died. Um, it's very difficult to think of Democrats who become more conservative, except perhaps you want to go far enough back to Felix Frankfurter and his behavior on judicial restraint and things like Cobos and Greens, which happened eight or 10 years after he did it. Well, all of this being said, I, I really believe that there isn't much that you can do to prepare on either of the two senses. I don't think you can really suss out somebody and figure out what she believes. And I think it's very hard uh, to protect somebody who's going to be questioned from all the adverse winds that are going to go take place. Um, I would want to have somebody I thought who was intellectually tough uh, to try to do this. I would put them through mock interviews to see the way in which this thing started to play out. I would have people play roles of various senators uh, um, in an effort to get them to understand what battle-hardened conditions are like. Um, but it's still going to be unanticipated twists that will determine the success or failure of any nomination that Trump puts forward either before or after the election. John, it's the last question that I'll put to you guys. Let's assume that this all goes, <laughs> I was going to say smoothly, as smoothly as it's going to go. And President Trump ends up getting his nominee. You've got six Republican appointees on the court. Obviously, the answer to this question is going to hinge somewhat on who that sixth person is. But broadly speaking, how does the court change with six? How, how does the majority change? Because we know that Roberts is a little here and a little there. We know already, even though his tenure has been brief, that Gorsuch can at least be quirky at times. I don't even know if we know enough from Kavanaugh. You know, he's been pretty steadfast thus far, but you just don't have a small sample size. What do you anticipate uh, being the change when you get to six, which issues should we be looking at? Oh, it's going to be prime time. <laughs> <It's>, it'll be <laughs> like Deion Sanders showed up for a football game. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, this is going to, I think they're, this is, uh, you know, the conservatives dream finally come true that they have been trying to achieve since 1968. And even though they've had a majority of Supreme court appointments, they've never really had a strong working majority because the fifth justice, whether it's a Powell or O'Connor or Kennedy or now Chief Justice Roberts, has always hedged and limited what the conservatives could do. And once you have six, where five of them are, you know, five of them, I think any of them would have been considered the most conservative justice on the Supreme Court in the 19, as long ago as the 1970s and early 80s. Uh, you know, most of these justices are to the right of Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, now. Um, that's going to prevent uh, Roberts from playing the role he's been playing these last few years, you know, providing a fifth vote to the liberals in cases like DACA or the Louisiana abortion case or the census case. And you go on and on. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to have a much more robust uh, conservative majority that'll be able to really uh, do some of the things that the conservatives long wish and put constitutional law in this conservative direction for at least a decade, if not longer. Uh, what John says is the strongest argument to see the uh, the court packing. I've just, you know, get these things up and you know, my colleague at Chicago, Brian Leiter, writing, um, saying, now they, the Republicans, want to pack the court further and more consequentially, given that they would appoint a conservative to face the liberal, the Democrats would be crazy not to do their own court packing. 
Um, and, and to me, that is just the fear. I think that the probability of the packing is exponentially higher. That's why I'm so afraid of this. I'm against the packing. Um, I, I said it as many times as I could. Uh, but, but conservatives but John, aren't packing the court. We're just well, no, we're John, filling, no, filling no, no, the court. No. I know the they're court. not going to pack yeah. the court, but the Democrats. Liberals are packing the court. They will certainly do that. I think the odds of that happening go up to tenfold if in fact uh, Trump wins the gets the nominee through and loses the presidential election and loses control of the Senate and if it turns out you get a divided situation with Biden in a Republican Senate or Trump in a Democratic Senate both of which I think are plausible um, it's going to be a very long hard grind before you get anybody through at the appellate level um, I'm just I mean to me the institutional dynamics matter more than the short-term victory or loss uh, what I'm I don't know whether I'm sad to say it, but boy, oh boy, when I look at the very impressive list on the letters that was signed, you were on that list, John, right? Uh, urging the president to go forward. Um, no, I, I, never, I never signed any letters. Oh, you didn't sign anything? I, I saw, signed I saw no your letters. Name. You Someone sign no it, letters. But I mean, you just, you've just put your voice <laughs> on that. I, mean, I do sign letters from time to time and so forth, but I generally prefer to write for myself. You're a libertarian. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I never like, collect, collective activity just gives, makes me itchy. <laughs> oh, well, that, John, it gives I me mean, rashes. If it's voluntary, I'm willing to do it. But actually, you know what? I think, let, I think let, we let, managed let. to put this conversation into a place that is so dizzying. Um, I'm going to say, no, I'm no, no, here, basically hold my fire any further, such as it is. I'm, I regard uh, in this situation, I think the Republican consensus is so powerfully strong. Uh, that nothing will deter them. So we're going to have to see how the after game plays out. Uh, and, you know, it could increase their probability of holding the presidency. It could reduce it. Um, this is such a volatile election that we really have no idea. America, you are headed into choppy waters. Well, I lied. I'm going to ask you guys one other question to close because you brought up this sort of dark view of America's institutional health, Richard. But is it is it a demerit against the founding fathers that they didn't set the number of Supreme Court justices in the Constitution? Yes, and it was also a demerit that they made them for lifetime. There should have been 18-year terms, and they probably should have picked a number like nine. <laughs> so your ideal solution, we should have a constitutional amendment that sets term limits for the judges and that fixes the number. Yeah, nine. I mean, and then the, we the, can the, by the way, the, the reason why the democratic threat is so powerful is you don't need a constitutional amendment to change the number from nine to right. 50. Um, all you do is change the governing statute, and you could do that by ordinary political processes. I am very unhappy about subconstitutional norms are uh, being altered by short-term political calculations. I, John, I, last I, word. I'm happy for Congress to continue to have the power to set the size of the Supreme Court and the size of the entire federal judiciary. Uh, it's seen as one of the political checks on the courts. I just think it's being misused here. I also wouldn't amend the Constitution to mess around with the ages of retirement and so on. Everybody knows that's the rule and you uh, govern according to it. Hey, I really have to say, I think it is, uh, again, this goes to how the Senate works. It's just such an overreaction uh, to say, uh, since you are uh, fulfilling your uh, constitutional duties and carrying out your constitutional powers, the Constitution does say you can nominate a person and you can confirm a person up till 
the end of that Congress, that that's actually subverting constitutional norms. I think it's actually the people who say, in response to you doing that, because you're getting too big a majority on the court as if the court's supposed to have some kind of balance. I don't remember people saying that about the Warren court, but because you're, well, you're using your constitutional powers to slowly over time change the ideological direction of the court, we're going to drop the atomic bomb on you and start messing around and add six new justices. It's th- They're the ones who are... I think on uh, uh, getting rid of sub of the I am not going to, I'm not going to apportion blame in this particular situation. I'm just going to run for cover. All right. <laughs> you sound so depressed. You're up. All right. All right, gentlemen. That's that's all on that dismal note. That's all the time that we have for today. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producer Scott Emmerich, and to all of our great listeners. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then. The faculty lounge is officially closed. Maybe forever. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, oh Richard, my what's God, going John. on there? You sound like you need you need a drink. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.